Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing nets into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Man, would you, uh, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for uh, the words of this song, the reminder of um, the dwelling place that you are. Lord, help us this morning um, to be reminded that uh, that dwelling place is not just a building with a steeple, but your dwelling place is us. Come and have your way and move amongst us, we pray. May the words of my mouth and meditations in my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are the rock, our Redeemer. It is in your name that we offer this prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. What's a saint? It's a question I've been wrestling with uh, this last week as we've thought about this Sunday. I even bought a new book by one of my theological heroes, N.T. Wright, who has wrestled with the same question, what is a saint? And I don't know about you, but as I look around and as I read, uh, I I realize that we've really made a mess about that question. Um, For for some, um, saints are special people who've lived in such a way that we kind of think differently about the world because of their lives. You know, people like St. Nicholas, who's still messing with the world every Christmas Eve. You know, the St. Nicholas of history is best known for giving gifts and punching heretics in the face. Put that on your chimney this December. How about you? In the Catholic Church, there's a serious process that is involved in becoming a saint. Um, it, it, it involves you being dead. <laughs> that matters. 
But you've also, in your life, had to have completed two miracles, and they have to be verified by the church. Now, I don't know about you, but (laughs) rules me out. For the rest of the church, sainthood uh, is is even more confusing. When when we read the, the letters of the New Testament, we're invited to see something totally different. Paul addresses the church in this way. Saints in the church. Now, who's Paul writing to? Not dead people. He's writing to live people. It's as if he's assuming that saints are living people. That, that'll mess with you. Protestants, we, we state that saints are the living and the dead followers of Jesus who are bringing about the kingdom. Now, I, I find this hysterical, quite frankly, because theologically we say one thing, but then we act a completely different way. We, we publicly say that all believers are saints, but we don't own that title, do we? we? We tend to act more like Catholics by there's a select group that are the saints. And usually those are people who are, who are dead and they're probably the people that we liked. Anybody going to say, oh, no, that, that, that uncle ain't a saint. No way, no chance. I got a couple of them. We say that these folks, those are the saints. Let me ask this question as we get started this morning. What would it do to your daily routine if you were to wake up each morning, walk to the mirror in your bathroom, and say this, good morning, saints of the living God? Now, some of you are chuckling inside of yourself because you're trying to picture that. And if you're anything like me, that picture looks like a stumble to the bathroom, your hair is a mess, there are creases from my pillow on my face, and good morning, saint of the living God is kind of more apropos. Most of us might more look like, it's alive, than good morning, saint of God. What would happen to you, though, if you were to approach your day Begin every morning owning that title, Saint of the Living God. There's a story of an old pilgrim who was struggling in his journey and his relationship with God. And so he went to see a holy man, a wise monk, and asked him the question, what must I do to become a saint? What must I do to live a holy and righteous life? And so the wise monk pauses And he invites the pilgrim to sit with him and watch a farmer who is across the street plowing his ground, plowing his field. The farmer has been working hard. He's leading a team of horses to turn over the soil. And occasionally the farmer would stumble and he would fall into the dirt and the mess. And after several trips up and down the the, the field, the farmer was just a mess. He was filthy from head to toe. And the pilgrim and the monk, they watched the farmer for 15 minutes or more, and finally the monk, not saying a word, finally the monk looks over to the pilgrim and he says, we all fall down in this life, but is the saint who gets back up. I've been really excited about this November series because uh, we're starting a a focus, the title is To Be a Disciple. My hope is that by the end of this month, we're going to have a clearer understanding of what it meant and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, we hear that word discipleship or disciple a lot in the church. Anybody heard it? It's like public, uh, you know, advertisements in your mailbox right now. We've heard it once or twice. But I, I, I fear and I witness too often that we really don't have a clue what it means. My hope is that we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to kind of 
mess with us. That's, that's not a spiritual term. I didn't learn that in seminary. <laughs> but we'll allow the Holy Spirit to, to mess with us in such a way that we might come to see that we're invited to a discipleship of falling down and getting back up again with the teacher who smiles and offers a hand. Next week, we're going to explore the understanding in Jesus' day of what it took to become a disciple. Don't miss. I got a special guest next week. You won't want to miss it. And then uh, two weeks from now, we're going to look at the purpose of being a disciple. What's the end game? What's the end result? But today, I want to talk about what I found to be some important foundations of this falling down and getting back up, this saints who are sinners, this tradition of the living and the dead followers of Jesus who choose to make a difference for the kingdom. Did you notice that word choose? Choose. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, wow, Jim, that sounds really great, really cool, but I am not able to do that because I am not a spiritual person. I don't have training or gifts or whatever to feel like anything that I do is really Jesus-y. Again, seminary word. I go to work, I pay my bills, I try to be a good citizen, but making a kingdom difference, though, well, you know what, that's your job, preacher. You go do that. Uh, I haven't heard any of you all say that, but I've certainly seen it. Oz Guinness wrote a book called uh, Calling. Some of you have read that book in Disciple Intensive Classes across First Church. And he says that if we think that way, that the preacher is the one who does the kingdom work, then we have bought into a distortion of faith. The distortion says that only religious people, professionals, are called to work, and the rest of us don't really have any kind of spiritual impact. Guinness doesn't go this far, but I will tell you that I think that this mindset that's captured a lot in the church, especially in America, is exactly what the enemy of our soul wants you to believe. How many of you all have read The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Oh, brilliant work uh, of, of fiction that, was, that tells the story of a master demon who is training his young apprentice demon in how to mess up the life of a Christian. It's great. And he gives all these lessons. And one of the lessons that the master demon gives is to keep the Christian thinking that his spiritual life and the rest of his life are separate pieces. Not one, but compartmentalized. He says in being divided, the Christian can't be whom God invites them to be. In other words, we can't be wide open and full of love and free. In other words, what can we not be like? We can't be like Jesus. That's harsh. God chooses over and over again throughout the scriptures to find these people that, that don't make the grade. They, they outpace the devotion and the passion of the professional holy people. The, in fact, the priests often become lazy and you've got other people, nobody's jumping up and taking over. A cupbearer like Nehemiah who comes to the rescue. Sheep herders like Moses and David who become great leaders and prophets and poets. God routinely chooses these nobodies to show the world what one of his somebodies can do. 
Let's look at who Jesus called to follow him in this passage that Brad read for us just a little bit ago. In this reading, we see Jesus who's walking along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and as he walks out, he sees four men, and he says to them, follow me. Now, these four men, they drop their nets, and they go running right after Jesus. They do not pass gold. They do not collect 200 pesos. They do not they just go. They're gone. And we're going to look at this follow me statement next week, but, but what is going on here? For thousands of years, the Hebrews had to travel a couple times a year to the temple in order to worship. But when the temple was destroyed, where do you go? you got to have local houses of worship that kind of pop up so that the reading and the interaction with the Hebrew Scriptures could occur. Now, the Hebrew Scriptures are called the Tanakh. Say that with me, Tanakh. And it is made up of three sections of writings, the Torah, the Nevi'im, or the Prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. The Torah is the first five books of of what we call the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch. And these are the most important writings of the Jewish faith. It's considered, when you read the five books, to be an encounter of God with his people. Think about that. Ever read Leviticus and went, ooh, I just encountered the holy? Come on, nobody's read Leviticus? (laughs) Ah, it's rough stuff. But the Hebrew people would read this and they would just go, wow. The first 39 books of our Bible is the Jewish Bible. Same thing. And the interaction with these words in these places of worship called synagogues would be led by a teacher called a rabbi. The rabbi was not a priest. Trained, yes. But this is someone who was a member of the community who worked a regular job. Our, our, our fancy word for that now is bivocational a bivocational leader. They would lead the community in the study of scripture. And in slow seasons of, uh, of, of working in the land or in carpentry, whatever that rabbi did, they would travel and they would teach the meaning of Torah with anybody who'd listen. In most Jewish villages and towns, they had one of these synagogues. Some of them were big, some of them were small, but to be a rabbi was kind of a big deal. And usually a rabbi would have some followers They called them disciples, Hebrew word is Talmudim, who would learn from them. And you might think that the best rabbis were in the biggest places with the biggest cities like Jerusalem, but that's not necessarily the truth. On on, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, there is this little area that is now called the Triangle, the Golden Triangle. It's made up of several little cities where the study of Tanakh was as important as the breath that each person took. These were not metropolitan areas. These were fishing villages, places where olives were harvested and where fruits and vegetables were grown. Sound familiar to anybody? Rabbis, teachers, interpreters of Scripture who would travel from place to place sharing God's word with God's people. Sound familiar? Oh yeah, that Jesus guy did a lot of that. Jesus acted just like this. His life, his ministry was that of a traveling rabbi. Rabbis had followers called disciples. What does Jesus have? Disciples. He does this too. And he starts out his ministry by gathering some of these disciples. Now, where does he not go? He doesn't go to the metropolitan areas. He doesn't go to the fancy synagogues. He doesn't go to the fancy schools. No, he goes to this place called Fishing Village, Bethsaida. And here in our scripture, we read about four. Five of the 12 disciples that Jesus calls 
comes from this little podunk town called Fishing Village. See if you remember their names. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, not mentioned, guy by the name of Philip. Five of Jesus' closest 12 were nobodies from a nowhere spot, a nowhere place in the north part of Israel. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus chose nobodies that we now, no matter what our tradition, call saints. Why did Jesus call these guys? Why not the road scholars from Jerusalem? In many ways, Jesus is just doing what God has always done, invited all folks to know him, to be useful for the kingdom. He's not just looking for educated and wise people. He desires that everybody know that they have a place in kingdom work. I also think it has a lot to do with this area. You see, I mentioned that Jerusalem wasn't the necessarily the place where you would go to get discipled well. It was in this area of Galilee where there was this passionate love of two foundations for what it took to be a disciple. I'm going to share those two foundations real quick with you. The first foundation of discipleship in Jesus' day, and particularly in Jesus' life, was a love of community. Bethsaida and Capernaum and Magdala, community life mattered big. To this day, Jewish, com- Jewish communities strive for a shared life that they do together. Nuclear families, or nuclear, whichever you prefer, those were things that they were just, what? what? They would have been misunderstandings. Community life was uncles and aunts and grandpas and grandmas and adopted family members all coming together, living life together. Yes, worshiping, but also working and playing and cooking and cleaning and celebrating and mourning. Community life was huge. It was so huge that the second foundation has to actually had to be seen inside of that life. And that second foundation was this love of scriptures, this love of the Tanakh, where people would particularly grab the Torah and read their stories, not as a bunch of legal codes or instructions, but a story of God's interaction with his own people. In fact, the, the Exodus wasn't just something that happened to those people back then. It was happening to them. It's still happening to them today. You go to a Passover Seder and they will say, when we were rescued from Pharaoh. It's still happening. Um, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, they weren't lost legends in some kind of um, choose-your-own-adventure book or comic that they had in their background. These were family members, uncles, part of the story, even today. And they knew these stories, and by new, I mean they memorized them and they interacted with them on a regular basis. These foundations for being a disciple is why Jesus chose these five nobodies from Nowheresville. To be a disciple, to be a saint, still to this day relies on foundations of community and scripture. Life together matters. The study of scripture is how we learn the voice of God. And Bethsaida, community was small, life was very focused. For us, community is difficult. We're spread out. We live lives at a frenzied pace, right? Community within our own own walls is difficult, let alone living with a larger group. And the study of Scripture, well, that's often done with our own modern-day rabbi in about 20 minutes on a Sunday morning right here. And as a result, 
the disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century are weaker. Our love of Scripture is practically non-existent. And we have to beg people to come and experience community, a community that we love when we're a part of it. It's really difficult to be a disciple when our foundations aren't set. Harder still when we accept the lie that nobody's can't be disciples, can't be saints. What would your life look like if you woke up every morning and saw a disciple, a saint, looking back at you in the mirror, getting ready for another day, getting back up after you've fallen down? What would it look like if a community became more than just a word, if Scripture became more than a book that's covered in dust on a bookshelf or on a nightstand? Alex and I had a discussion this week that I want to close with that I, I think relates. Uh, I asked this question in the first service and I was shocked, so I'm expecting a bigger uh, response this, in this service. How many of you all still bleed blue? So not surprised, a little bit stronger of a, of a grouping here. Um, I don't bleed blue, I bleed orange and blue, and I still do that too. Um, but let me ask you this. Um, for those of you who bleed blue, is it more, would it be more difficult if your pastor, your rabbi, stands up here who says, I bleed orange and blue, is it more difficult to accept that or if I were to say, I bleed Louisville Cardinal Red? Nay, nay, right? It's easier. Now, why, or your, your previous rabbi who bled whatever Texas A&M is. Why is that easier? Because we're a part of the SEC, right? And if you look at the commercials, we're part of the SEC, and it just means more. I talk to my Louisville friends up north, and they say, we don't get why you root for other SEC teams. They're your enemies. You should root against them. I said, well, it's just because you don't get it. Um, as Alex and I were driving back from Atlanta last week, we had this conversation. You know, it's interesting. Whether you bleed blue, whether you bleed orange and blue or whatever, when you're sitting on the, the, the floor of Rupp or at Commonwealth, it'll always be Commonwealth, when you're sitting there, you can be sitting by someone you vastly disagree with in just about every facet of life, right? But you still bleed blue. It's still the BBN, Right? You can disagree. You're one. You're united. The term university means single. And yet, and here is my question, why is it in the one place where we are united under our Lord, God, and Savior, one Lord, a one faith and one baptism that our kids sang about for us earlier, we are quick to divide? We can't find unity. There are people that sit next to us that look nothing like us probably don't believe a whole lot like us, and we're very quick to form new, dis new denominations anytime we have a disagreement. What would happen if we stopped bleeding blue or orange and blue or whatever, instead chose to bleed with the blood of the passion of the Christ? still calls us to a oneness and a unity. Maybe, maybe just then, a generation that's out there that's looking at the church and going, man, that's just a bunch of backbiting, whiny, complaining, divided people. Maybe they wouldn't have that argument.
begins with foundations. A foundation that says community matters. The study of scripture is as important as breath. This is part what it means to be a disciple. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know the call. We have heard you say, follow me. We wrestle with the idea of being disciples or saints, knowing that there's a lot of work to do. And yet, the invitation remains clear. Fall down, get back up, join hands with our Savior, our rabbi, our teacher, and grow a little bit more. Lord, this week, every time we find ourselves looking in a mirror, may we be reminded that we have been called to be saints and disciples. Call us to community. Drive us to your word. And let us truly see the difference you long to make. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our risen and reigning Savior and King. And all God's people said,